Hello and welcome to Monocle on Culture. I'm Robert Bound. The time has come for you to lip sync for your life. Now, sashay away. In an explosion of glitter and hairspray, drag has sashayed its way into the mainstream. From an art form that sat on the fringes of society, yet undoubtedly offering an indispensable community and creative outlet to many queer young people, by 2009 it made its way into a game show format on TV, and by 2022 has clawed its way to become family entertainment. Those long acrylic nails must have lent a helping hand. On the way, drag has picked up legions of fans, helped complicate our assumptions about gender and inspired a generation of performers, also complete with big hair, feather boas and handbags of attitude. On today's show, we'll be discussing this, the sparkliest of art forms, and dissecting it. How did it make its grand entrance into the mainstream? And what is the effect of this on the queer community? And can RuPaul really take all the credit? First up on today's show to help me have a crack at these questions is Nicole Pasulka, the author of the new book, How You Get Famous, 10 Years of Drag Madness in Brooklyn. Nicole, thanks so much for coming on the programme today. A brilliantly titled book, How You Get Famous, 10 Years of Drag Madness in, in Brooklyn, paints such a wonderful picture. You can kind of smell the smell the lip gloss and sweat of some of these amazing characters and bars in specifically Brooklyn. Can you paint us a bit of a picture, as you do in the book, of the atmosphere that attracted you to these to these bars and to have, have you write the book in the first place? Yeah, you know, Brooklyn is really interesting because it's massive. It's a huge scene. And, you know, there are wonderful drag scenes, to be clear, around the world. And I have to be honest and say I specifically looked at Brooklyn partly just because I have lived there for a long time and I was really familiar with the community. But it's also an incredibly unique place because you can have you have dive bars, small small spots, you know, that are open till 4 a.m. where young people who kind of just want to perform, you know, young queer people who maybe want to dance or they just want to lip sync or maybe they want to even sort of sing or do some performance art can kind of just show up one day and with not too much gatekeeping end up on stage. And that's super exciting and leads to a really diverse and robust scene of queer performance. But there's also a lot of what you might want to, what you might call like world-class, very polished drag, some incredibly practiced and experienced performers who have traveled the world, who in many cases have appeared on RuPaul's Drag Race, and those are also Brooklyn local performers. So what you've got is just this incredible spread of new and -and up-and-coming artists and really established drag. And for that reason, it's exciting. There's also just a massive audience for art and a lot of nightlife devotees, which I love. There's just a crowd that is into it night after night after night, you know, and sort of mint stars locally and just laps it up. 
Yeah, I mean, it feels like uh, <laughs> it's. It, you must. I mean, the, the the fun and exuberance and the kind of meaningfulness actually of the scene really comes through in the book. As I say, it, it's it's such a kind of cherishable slice of New York City life, and we're sort of told that this sort of tribalism and scenes and things have kind of died out in this sort of internet age, social media age, but. You, you found a real community. Can you tell us a bit about the vibe of that community? Because I guess the, a drag queen on stage is a kind of catty, wise-cracking performer, but there's a great tenderness to the community in the scene, isn't there? Yeah, and I think there that's true for some drag, but there's also, I think, an element of drag that we don't maybe think of immediately, but it is very real, which is just about getting your life, about living a fantasy, about being whoever, whatever kind of character or creature you want to be and being able to do it almost sort of like getting that immediate gratification. And what happens in the scene, I think, is that people have realized over time, you know, it's not, it's not going to work if only one of us is famous. It's not going to work if only one of us has all the gigs. People are going to get bored. And as much as you're getting your life, from doing drag, you're, you're, you're feeling the same kind of excitement and enthusiasm from watching your friends do drag and from watching your friends perform. So there ends up being just a real exciting, lively mix of performers who support each other. They, they, they go to each other's shows, they tip each other, they're each other's biggest fans, you know, and that doesn't mean there's not mess and fights and rivalries and frustrations, because there isn't any community. But I think there's also a real grind, a real night after night of showing up and showing out in Brooklyn, you know, and in all different kinds of spaces. Tiny little smelly bars and really big, gorgeous theaters because of the size and the diversity of the scene. Yeah, it's sort of, the, it's vibrancy, so it seems incredible. I, I wonder whether you, whether you can tell us about your sort of personal involvement how it how it appealed to you did you just happen upon a bar one night and felt at home and felt entertained what about your personal place in all this Nicole well it's kind of interesting you know I moved to Brooklyn I guess I moved to New York in 2001 and I moved to Brooklyn in 2002 and at that time there was not anything calling itself drag in Brooklyn there was drag in New York City and it was largely Manhattan based and like fairly tourist friendly there was queer performance art all over the city and especially in Brooklyn, but it didn't call itself drag and drag just didn't really have much of a space in the borough. And I got used to that. You know, I was very involved in the lesbian club scene for many years and then, you know, kind of moved out of the city for a while. And then when I came back around 2012, 2013, there were a ton of new bars. There were all these shows. Let me just say, if you live in a place and suddenly there's all these new faces going out in incredible costumes and just like throwing party after party after party and everyone's talking about it, like that's just exciting. And I think, you know, also I was seeing Drag Race, RuPaul's Drag Race, become this sort of like cultural phenomenon. And I think the combination of those two things just got me so interested in what this community, grassroots, like ground level community looks like and how it is affecting something that's on TV and also being affected by the exposure from, you know, an a gr- a increasingly popular TV show. 
Yeah, well, you sort of mentioned the the elephant in the uh, the elephant in the room there, right? With Ru- RuPaul's Drag Race, and 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 you mention it, you know, throughout the book as well. And people, you know, some of your collaborators in the book sort of worry about its edginess. Some people defend RuPaul. Some people think that she, you know, that that she's a sellout. I wondered what your kind of take on that is, because you know, it's it's popular. It's made it's made family. It's made what what has been in different ways i suppose a, a transgressive and a kind of and, a, and and something that was very much for a specific community into primetime family entertainment across across the world which is an amazing sort of positive thing but what with a rupaul's drag race like you know it has it lost has has that sort of the success of that program caused drag to sort of lose some of its edge i wonder i i definitely don't think that it's taken the edge away from drag. I think there is an audience for less subversive, more family-friendly drag, and that audience is unsurprisingly bigger than the audience for the drag of people putting things in their orifices and taking them out, the drag of late-night clubs, the drag of spitting beer into the crowd, although, you know, we can see that on Drag Race too, some of that. But I think from what I can tell, there will always be a space in a drag world for edgy, non-family friendly, late night performances. But what RuPaul seems to have done is to have carved out a pretty substantial audience for the sort of live your best life, really self-affirming, we're all born naked and the rest is drag kind of aspect of the art form you know this this way in which we we know that drag can help people self-actualize and express themselves and RuPaul understands that better than anyone and I think is giving that to a really a really big audience so I think it's just that it's bigger now because of RuPaul and in some ways it being bigger means that there's this built-in audience who maybe is going to go towards those saucier um, racier drag scenes and still find what they need there. So it it can, I think in many ways it does trickle down. Did you see it coming though? I mean, it, it's, you know, you say you've gotten down and dirty and chronicled this really kind of real scene in Brooklyn, but is it is it one of those things where every everyone secretly has has recorded it and is going home to watch it that that's been performing that night? I mean, it, it, is it is it like I mean, it's kind of like having your favorite sport televised and suddenly become huge, or a band that you loved suddenly you know headlining Glastonbury or something, right? It's a it's a funny people people have mixed feelings about the success of something that they love because they want to hold it and cherish it as something that only they only they possess and understand. Do you know what I mean? Oh, totally. And I think a lot of people only like drag race. They don't really like drag in bars and clubs and in in live performance. And that can be really frustrating because it can feel like that's not a genuine audience for the art form. I did not see it coming. I was shocked. But in some ways, I didn't see it coming, I guess I should say. RuPaul's charisma, RuPaul's star quality. I mean, we've known about this since the 90s. RuPaul did not this is not RuPaul's first gig, right? Like she was an incredibly popular performer when she released Supermodel in 1993, you know, like people were obsessed with her in the 90s as well. But so that RuPaul thing is not surprising, but the that this show has 
garnered the audience that it has. Yeah, it it totally took me by surprise. And that's part of why I wanted to write the book, right? Because I wanted to understand what was happening. Take it back to Brooklyn, take it back to the clubs. You referring to drag as an art form, as a performance art event, which it certainly is. It's sort of an avant-garde echelon of it. For a lot of people, I presume it's also just, as as you say, and you mentioned a lot in the book, it's a way to express yourself have a lot of fun tell jokes so it's halfway but some of it's halfway but i guess between almost like a stand-up comedy routine and an art performance what what's the sort of what are some of the different genres if you can just paint us a very brief picture of some of the kind of genres of, of drag that you've you've seen in, in brooklyn nicole it's hard to say because I think the thing that Brooklyn does really well is brings a whole bunch of different types of performers together into the same rooms. So Brooklyn really, really reveres having a singing queen next to a dancing along with a, you know, a queen who's maybe going to sing a show tune actually live next to someone who's just an incredible dancer and is just going to give you Beyonce and serve and we're going to get our fantasy from that. Next to a queen who's like, who's got an incredible outfit, layers upon layers of fabric, stunning makeup, but looks like an alien and maybe isn't exactly a performer, but is like more of a look queen. You know, we can see all those elements in Brooklyn. And also there's, yes, tons of comedy, tons of people who have just created hilarious characters and they want to roll around in stage and and like harass and harangue audience members. I think what's nice about the scene there is that it It's more like people getting together because they want to be around each other, not necessarily because they're all doing the same thing. It's such a specific, it seemed like such a specific thing so many years ago. And it's, and for it to suddenly become mainstream is, I don't know, does that hearten you? Does it, does it tell us anything about the world? Is it something that would have been impossible to imagine without sort of social media and things like that? I don't know, because drag was really popular in the 90s. I think this is something that people forget. You know, Tu Wong Fu made $50 million in 1995. Drag queens were on all, at least in the States, you know, drag queens were on daytime talk shows with regularity. There was a real excitement about things like Wigstock, right, which is a huge drag festival that run by a drag queen named Lady Bunny from the 80s through the 90s in New York City. Tens of thousands of people went to see that show every year. So it's, it's knowing that, it's not surprising, but I do think there's no doubt that social media has brought this, what, I'm, what I sometimes think of like as a 2010s drag revival or drag boom, you know, into people's homes in a new way. It has brought it to younger audiences. It has brought it to more isolated audiences and it has made it way more accessible. was Nicole Pasulka and her book is available now and it is called How You Get Famous, 10 Years of Drag Madness in Brooklyn. Now let's turn to this side of the Atlantic and hear from one of the UK's top drag performers. I was joined in the Monocle studio by Amru al Khadi, otherwise known as Glamru. Allah. <laughs> 
want your revenge, I want your love. I don't wanna be friends. Je veux ton amour. Amru, thank you very much for joining us on the programme. Now, we heard from Nicole in the first half of the show, and that's kind of like the, the theory side of it, in a way. And you and Glamru are perhaps the more practical side of it. So, I mean, you start your book, in fact, in a very beguiling, bewitching way, talking about being backstage at the Edinburgh Festival, feeling a little bit wobbly, but you say itching to put your, your, your hair and makeup back on and get back up on the stage. And I want to know what that's like. I'd love to know what that's like because it's kind of the key that it's the kind of switch that needs flicking on this program. I think. What does it feel like to 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 to, to be in that, to be that person? Yeah. Well, to get into drag is quite an arduous, long experience. <laughs> I find it quite meditative, actually. Just sort of, you know, three or four hours of almost kind of like self care time. Mm-hmm. You know, and it is you are just staring at yourself in a mirror for four hours. So you know, slowly transforming. Yeah, deciding what you want to be. I mean, shows can obviously be really chaotic and really high energy. And obviously sometimes they're in nightclubs or they're in Edinburgh, as you said, mm. or Soho Theatre or whatever. And drag is such high output of energy, especially because I do a one-queen show now. You know, that's like a you know, 70 minutes of just so much output that I try and really use the three to four hours before almost a bit like meditation or kind of self-care and, you know, block out the world. And also you have to make quite a lot of decisions in that moment just because if you arch your eyebrow in a certain way or if you draw a really big lip or make a really harsh contour, it does affect the character or what people will perceive. Definitely made some mistakes early in my career of maybe just like putting on a really big arch and just looking like a So pant- it's too much, you know, and it, or you can't, it's like that thing, as, as everyone's so mum used to say to them, if you continue making that face and the wind changes, you'll stay like that. Yeah. But you actually have this decision to make in, in makeup, right? Well, yeah, and I really like to pick, like, my shows are, there's a lot of comedy and emotion and the face needs to work with the makeup mm-hmm. so that the audience can read what you're doing. Yeah. So that takes years and years to get right and screwing it up is all part of the fun as well. And the and, and when you're that feeling, that transformation, that for you four hour transformation to become Glamru and to get up on stage in your heels. Is that power? Is that sort of, do you feel just about right at that point? Or is it, do you get that rush of, is it performance? I wonder what that is. Yeah. It's a tough one to uh, answer, I know. But uh, it's, it's, it's a, it feels, it seems to me that it must be a very empowering it's thing. Em- it's empowering, but it is actually a lot more than that. But I think the, the reason it's so addictive is it's empowering, yes. But, the, but when you're in drag, you really do feel like you have this license to say and do things that maybe most people would feel nervous to or that you yourself were suppressing. I mean, one of my best friend's drag sisters was actually really out of drag, very polite, overly apologetic person, always apologizing. And then when they developed a drag character, she literally was a murderer. <laughs> um, yeah. She And she killed all of her husbands and she did all these incredible 
Talk, so there's some therapy in yeah, it as well, performance right? pieces on stage yeah. where you know she was eating babies and you know and like <laughs> they're connected because I think in drag she finally felt like she had this space to kind of release the monstrous side of her that yeah. so for me there's there's that just just the fact that the drag is a gateway into just you know I have a lot of anxiety and OCD and I'm often in my head a lot of the time mm. and want to make sure that I'm being polite and not offending anyone suddenly in drag that kind of stuff goes away and I think the reason drag performing is so addictive for me it's probably the most kind of present I feel when you're in drag and there's you know a few hundred people there and you just the whole world goes away and you also it's your world I don't think actors feel the same way when I speak to them because often you're like in the world of a play or in the world of Stoppard or whatever, which is, can be great. But when, when you're a drag character, you're asking all these people to invest in your reality for a bit. And that is just, it's just transformative, especially the world is so bleak right now. I'm kind of looking as much as possible to escape it. Yeah. So that you can be sort of un- unapologetically selfish, a bit solipsistic in that moment because people are looking at you and what, and and you've created this I think early you on you glamour to 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 ease that. I think the selfish thing is actually like a trope with drag queens that drag queens also fall into. I think early on in my drag career, I just got in drag and I was just actually quite a rude MC. <laughs> You yeah. know, someone would interrupt and I'd say, oh, shut up, I'm on stage now, love. And it was all a little bit. And often a, lo- a lot of drag queens will talk about their early manifestation of their drag. Because, like, the first time you feel like you have any power, especially if you've been, like, bullied or you're very feminine and that gets you in trouble, suddenly on stage, you know, you have all this power. And But actually, I now see it as, like, creating a room or an environment where, yes, obviously, the attention's on me, but because I've, like, created a space where the unsaid happens, I hope that the audience also feel part of that. I don't I don't want them to feel like they have to be quiet often at my shows. They're not interactive, but I hope that they feel like a room where like the unspeakable becomes the speakable. I mean my shows are very dark. So Yeah. And has has you're currently touring in the United States, the show's called Glamroo. Mm-hmm. How much has that evolved? Because you've played at the Soho Theatre in London, I know, recently. How much does that change from night to night? And how much does that change from the UK to the US? Because if, it, if it's interactive, the audience is doing some of the work, right? So yeah. you have to, it's, it's, there's a bit of reading the room to that. Yeah, I mean, there is a bit of reading the room. And most drag queens do come up on in, through clubs. Yeah. Like most of my early, I'd actually say my drag shows now, now that I get to perform, you know, I'm doing Joe's Pub in New York or Dynasty Typewriter in LA or Soho Theatre or wherever. Mm-hmm. I'd actually say that these gigs now are a lot easier than the early gigs like at the Glory or Bethany Green Working Men's Club because then you really have to contend with just drunk people at the bar coming in, shouting. I think that's why drag queens are quite quick when it comes to sort of a read or a comeback. It's just like we're quite used to having to really just dodge whatever happens in the room. And so that has always stayed with me and I do do a lot of improv in my show, much to annoy my musical team because like it happens a lot during my songs that I'll just trail and do whatever. But it is a written show. Definitely there have been different responses. It, I, I kind of have to feel it out. Like if it's a Friday night, 9 p.m., 10 p.m. show at the Soho, the audience are, you know, lubricated, if that makes any sense, and they're ready. <laughs> they're ready for it. Whereas I had to do my first show in L.A., was 
a 7.30 slot on a Monday. And so... Less, the, less lubricated. Less lubricated <laughs> and very um, nervous. But actually, when the audience is nervous, it can be quite funny to play with that. Yeah. Because then it's like, why are you nervous? Do you think I'm going to kill you? Do you... Is it because you're scared of seeming racist? What you know? And I try and actually play on that a little bit as well. So whatever the yeah. audience offers, I'll try and go with. Now, I was once of the impression that the Quran is the best girl's go-to guide on how to live a queer life. <laughs> as a child-raised Muslim, I was taught that every time you commit a sin, you get bad points on your left shoulder. And every time you do good deeds, you get good points on your right. Now, sins could happen from the most natural of thoughts, like, I'm jealous of that girl's fuchsia pencil case, or, please, Allah, if I drink enough milk, will you just turn me white? <laughs> I once did have a group of Muslims, women, in, like, burqas in the front row. I mean, it's kind of the opening of my book. And I, yeah, and, yeah. you know, and this was a performance in which I was breaking up with Allah in a, with a song, you know, wearing this glitter thong, and there was, like, a mosque, which was, like also a sex club in the show and you know it was like on the line and I thought they were um, glad you defined what on the line yeah. is there for us <laughs> um, and they and I obviously was really nervous because mm. they were um, you know clearly religious women mm. and assumed that they were hating the whole performance and then afterwards I mean I actually tried to run away because I was just so like nervous about their approach but it turned out they really really loved it and just had been a fan for a while and they just thought it was really funny <laughs> they had like, some problems with the politics, but, you know, so it's kind of interesting for me to think, oh, wow, well, like, there's over one billion Muslims. A lot of them might actually yeah. recognize there's themselves all, in this. All, all, all also, I would say, I mean, there's a performer I really love called Lucy McCormick, who did that amazing mm -hmm. show at Soho Theatre called Triple Threat, which was like a retelling of the Bible, but through her own body. So, you know, she kind of fists herself to do Doubting Thomas and that kind of stuff. But it's actually quite faithful to the Bible. Yeah. So there were Christian groups who were actually quite into the show. And I would say that my show, although it's transgressive, it is quite faithful to... It doesn't make anything up about the Quran. And it's not like Charlie Hebdo or anything like that. It's not It's not making fun of it. It's just, yeah. this is my experience of it. Yeah, yeah. So I try... Well, I think you know you know deeply what you're talking about on both... In, in terms of who you are and, who, and what that is, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's... You can't... Not mock is the right word, but you can't comment on, especially something like that, without knowing it inside mm. out, right? It's also just my experience. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, it's me. It's not Islam. Yeah. I asked Nicole in the first half of the show about the sort of elephant in the ballroom, which is RuPaul's Drag Race, which has kind of pulled a, a, a genre that was occasionally on British TV, but in a, in a, in a kind of Lily Savage and Dame Edna and kind of like very soft, sort of middle-aged, middle-class kind of, I don't know, it's gotten, it's been so different since this this thing became mainstream. Does that mean anything? What does that mean when kind of families are sitting down watching this on a Saturday tea time? I think it's overall quite a good thing. I mean, I think there is like a, um, a cooler response yeah. there. I think overall what I like about Drag Race is that it's shown audiences how much skill is involved in drag, you know, the amount, just how talented these queens are at makeup, costume, comedy, singing, you know, I think it's really shown people. And it's also given a lot of broke drag queens a lot of opportunity, which is a really good thing. I, and a lot of queens that I know, just see ourselves as just not even in conversation with that show. Yeah. And that's fine. You yeah. know, there's 
mainstream music like Katy Perry and then there's like indie music that's never on Radio 1 but both can exist and it's a little bit like that for me I'm glad the show exists it does a certain has a certain function but it's just not the drag that I know so sure it's a very it's become a very broad it probably always was but now people can see the broadness of of the art form of the genre right yeah I mean I don't think it you do really see the full broadness of the genre I think you see like quite specific you know you see the lip, entertainment lip, lip syncing is not actually that common in the UK. Right. I mean, like, I sing live. Most of the queens I know sing live. Some of the best drag queens I know, they just don't really lip sync. Or when they do, it's not to a pop song. And so, you know, Drag Race might give somebody the impression that, like, to be a good drag queen, you know, you need great fashion, you need to be able to lip sync. But some of the best UK drag queens look hideous and they don't lip sync. So, <laughs> yeah. but and they're great. Yeah. So it's just it's just a different thing. I mean, I would have often been asked about going on the show, but I just don't think my politics would be featured on the show. I just right. don't think they would let me do what I do. You'd be either cleaned up, or you would be. You won't be. You, glamour wouldn't be true to us. I just don't think I could do it. Sing to Allah on BBC Three. <laughs> I just don't think I could do that, or I don't. I just don't think I could. Yeah. I just just don't think I could do it. I just think it would, it would and that would be a shame. For yeah, me. for sure. That is all we have time for this week. My thanks to Nicole Pasulka, whose new book is How You Get Famous, 10 Years of Drag Madness in Brooklyn. And thank you also to Amru Al-Kadi. Their book is called Life as a Unicorn, which is currently in development as a TV show. Now, are you heading abroad this summer? Don't miss the recommendations featured in the July-August issue of Monocle. From a sculpture park in France to a listening bar-come-restaurant in Singapore, there are plenty of cultural hotspots worth stopping off at. Monocle on Culture is produced by Sophie Monaghan-Coombs and Steph Chong-Gu, and this week's show was edited by Adam Heaton. 